Someone uh, mentioned this morning that they were intrigued to see what I was going to do with this title. And I kind of enter into it with a little bit of fear and trembling, talking about big boys do cry. Because in the family where I grew up with, nobody expressed a lot of emotion, really excited emotion or really negative emotion. It just wasn't, uh, without spending a lot of time in it, it just wasn't in our vocabulary. And even though we were Baptists, I always thought we would be really good poker players, except that, you know, face cards were evil and we never had them in our house, but we would have been really good. So we played Rook instead. I learned how to play that Baptist Bridge or Pentecostal Bowl or whatever you call it. Um, but we could, anyway, emotions were kind of a, a scary thing. Now I've learned, and am still learning, that emotions are God's warning lights saying, hey, there's something flashing up in the dash, pay attention, what's going on? And if you study the life of Jesus, he was not a stoic. He was not, uh, he had emotions, he got angry. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about that verse in Ephesians, in your anger do not sin? Jesus got ripping, furious at things, didn't he? And he got deep, he was deeply troubled at times. He would get really happy and celebrate with his friends. He ran the full gamut of any emotions that a healthy human being could experience. You can learn a lot about a person by what makes them, by what gives them joy and what brings them grief. Especially what makes a person weep. That's very interesting. This is Palm Sunday. The kids have done their thing. They were awesome. I tried to give out a few palms to adults, but that's okay. They didn't join the parade. This time, you know who you are. But on Palm Sunday, it was kind of a remarkable day in Jesus' history. There was all through Jesus' ministry, and especially towards the end, there was mounting pressure on him and he became a wanted man. Literally, his face was up in the equivalent of every post office in Judea because the authorities had it in for him. And if you read the scriptures carefully, they say they started to plot and figure out, how are we gonna kill this guy? How are we gonna rub him out and eliminate him? He's just making too much trouble for all of us. He needs to be taken care of. Um, he needs to be terminated with extreme prejudice. I think there was a movie I saw one time. Just taken out. And so for Jesus to enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was taking a huge risk. We're going to read the story together and I'm going to comment on a few things as we go along. And then we're going to examine what made Jesus weep. After telling the story, uh, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. When he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, they're little suburbs of Jerusalem. And Mount of Olives is this hill overlooking the city. He sent two disciples on ahead. Go into that village there, he told them, and as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. Now we're not told in the story if Jesus is encouraging his 
uh, disciples to be horse thieves, or Jesus had set this up ahead of time. Um, they went and found the colt, actually, as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owner said, What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you untying that colt? The disciples simply replied, The Lord needs it. So, that seemed to be good enough. Whether it was prearranged or not, I don't know. Obviously, the Lord carried some weight, and off they went. So they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments over it for him to ride on. Now this is interesting because we don't have any other record in Jesus getting around other than by walking. He went on a few exciting boat rides with his friends. He actually used a boat to preach in one time. When the crowds got so big on the shore, he sat in the boats and the voice would carry across the water. It was a very effective PA techniques. But we don't know of any other time that we know of that Jesus actually rode on an animal. So this is out of the ordinary. And what would this signal to the crowd? He did it very intentionally. As he rode along, now he's riding along, and what's remarkable to me as a farm boy, he's riding an animal that hadn't been ridden before, which is dangerous enough in a field I have the concussions to prove it, but you you don't do that in a big crowd of noisy people because the animal is going to spook and take off. I don't know how he did that either. But anyway, he's riding on a young colt through this crowd. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. What were they thinking? We get a little insight into this by referring to a passage from the Old Testament, a prophecy from 500 years earlier. Prophet Zechariah had proclaimed, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was a symbol that a king, a visiting king, was coming in peace. Normally, how do kings get around? Chariots, in those days, or big war horses. Pilate had already arrived, Governor Pilate had already arrived with a, a bunch of Roman troops just to keep the lid on things in Jerusalem. This was Passover time, an eight-day national celebration, probably one of the most important times of the year for the Jewish nation. And people would come from all over the known world to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem just to be there for this event, because there was one temple, right, that was a center of worship for the Jewish world, and everybody wanted to be there. So the city was packed, and packed with who? Packed with people who knew their Bible. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew these prophecies. So there's those kind of people in the crowd. And there's also just the onlookers. You know, whenever there's a parade, or especially a spontaneous parade, people just go and watch, right? Just you wait. One of these days, maybe in this century, a Winnipeg sports team will win a national championship. <laughs> Chuckles of skepticism are well understood. But just wait. But something like that event, even if the Jets ever make it back in the playoffs, or even imagine, can you imagine if they even win a home game, a home playoff game in this city? My goodness, don't try driving down Portage Avenue. 
Because these crazy people, they just go out and celebrate in the street. So it's one thing to be part of a planned parade, carefully orchestrated parade. You know, every December we see Santa Claus go by and we give out 1,500 cups of hot chocolate or whatever and, you know, try to love our neighbors. But that's a planned parade. But spontaneous parades or demonstrations are much more interesting. And that's what had happened. Like Jesus was planning it. He knew that all these people were anticipating, all these people, these, these God-seekers, God-fearing Jews would be in there, in, in the city at that time. He also knew, you know, having just raised Lazarus from the dead in a nearby town just a few days previous, that there was all kinds of interest and curiosity, and many people were believing in him. So they would be in the crowd too. I like to think in the crowd, there might have been some of the people that Jesus has healed. Lazarus, for example, new celebrity in town, based on all the papers. Um, maybe Jairus' daughter, that little girl who was sick, got raised back to health again. Different people that Jesus had healed. Maybe some of those people that had been there, do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? That was 5,000 men, I'm sure they didn't even count women and children. There was a big crowd of over 10,000 people that he you know, came up with this spontaneous picnic out in the middle of nowhere. I think some of those people were there too. There were the skeptics. There, in, a, in any crowd, there's always the people that go, yeah, right. There were some people that hated Jesus. People that hated him. We'll get to that in a little bit. So all these, all these people are watching as Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives, close by, descending, into the city. And they recognize, this is their way of celebrating, you know, whether you're wearing your sports paraphernalia or whatever, they're waving palm branches, what you would do to greet a king. And they're actually taking off their outer garments and laying it down in the road is a way of saying, oh king, please walk this way. Right? And they're honoring this man. All his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. And I'm sure people just got caught up in this because people aren't just caught up in the crowd for being sacred, getting caught up in the crowd. There was this tremendous hunger and anticipation. This was an occupied country, right? They have a corrupt king in Herod and they're under Roman rule. And these people are just itching to be independent and set free. So they're, they're happy. This is a great day. And they're praising God for all the things. And I'm sure people are saying, didn't you see him? I heard him do this. And did you, were you there? And all this buzz being created. And this is all without Facebook. This is the original Facebook because it was kind of face-to-face. -face. People talking and experiencing things together. It was amazing. It was kind of like a spontaneous social media thing. And they're singing, Blessing on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the King. Not Herod, not Pilate or the Roman Emperor. The King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Then, here's the opposition, the skeptics in the crowd. Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. That's out of line. 
This man's a heretic. He deserves to die. He's a blasphemer. He's called himself God. And we've caught him. We have the evidence. And what does Jesus say? Oh, sorry. Put that down. Guys, just tone down the God thing a little bit. You're upsetting people. It's not politically correct. He says, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The very stones would cry out. So, you guys be quiet and give it the program. That's what he's saying. This is Jesus' big coming out day. Nothing's going to ruin it. But something unusual happens. All these people are recognizing Jesus for who he is. He's the king. Yay, deliverance, peace, happiness. God's going to set up his kingdom. Everything's going to be straightened out the way it should be. Good times. Let the good times roll. That's what these people are thinking. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, everything kind of grinds to a stop. And you know what happens when a, you know, a train stops that, or, or a line stops. You, you stop and everyone else kind of piles up behind you. There's kind of a traffic jam starts right there. And he begins to weep. Now don't you think this is a little weird? Doesn't that strike you as just a little weird? Shouldn't this be a happy day? Jesus has been wandering the countryside for almost three years with a bunch of ragtag nobodies that he keeps trying to teach them about the kingdom of God, but they're so thick they don't always get it, like us. And finally, this is his big day. This is the big reveal. This is his debut. And people are happy. He's finally popular. Kind of. At least that day. Later on that week, not so much. But this is the height of it. So if you're somebody in the crowd that Jesus has healed, you're saying, yeah, Jesus, Jesus rock, this is awesome. Let's go get him. And if you're a revolutionary, if you're still one of those kind of on the run, saying, wow, maybe this Jesus guy, maybe we can throw out throw those rotten Romans. He'd even get rid of that crook Herod. That'd be great. Awesome. Maybe if you're one of the disciples, maybe if you're Peter, it's like, I'm with him. He's the man. It's my homie. Or bros. Not Jesus. Jesus rocks. Or James and John. Do you remember how their mom came to Jesus and said, oh, Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, remember my two boys. They're good boys. They should be in the cabinet. They should be on your left hand and your right hand. They're good boys. Maybe they're plotting that. Andrew's thinking, Whoa, where did all these people come from? Andrew's really good at people bringing people in ones and twos to Jesus, but not crowds. I think he was probably a little overwhelmed. But I think the disciples were going, whoa, this is different. Uh, this could be good. This is really cool. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops, and he, he doesn't just get a little misty. He's weeping. His body is convulsing, and he's shaking. And people think, is he laughing? Is he joyful? Is he crying for joy? No, he's weeping out of a deep sadness. What is going on here? He looks at Jerusalem, sees all these people celebrating his arrival as a king, 
And he's saying, ah, oh, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Jesus comes with a kingdom of peace. Not a kingdom of violence or power or control, but Jesus comes the kingdom of peace, changing people from the inside out, not coercing them, not with a sword, but with love. People don't get that. They don't see it for what it is. And almost 40 years later, the Roman Empire crush and destroy a revolt in Jerusalem and literally level the whole place. The center of worship for Judaism is scattered and dispersed. Now, it wasn't until 1948 that Israel became a political entity with some geography to hang on to. That was it. That was the end of Israel as a political entity. And Jesus wept over that because I am coming here to proclaim my kingdom and you people just will not see it. Talk about ships passing in the night. They just completely missed it. Because they were looking for a king to control. And in fact, they wanted Jesus. They were the ultimate consumers. Religious consumers. It's a big problem in North America today. Because we want Jesus to give us what we want. We want Jesus to fix this. Or to fix those people. To change those people. Not us. Just... If Jesus could change my circumstances, make me healthy and wealthy, and make me happy, that would be great. Don't ask too much of me personally. Don't, don't mess with me. Don't transform me personally. Just change my circumstances, and we'll make a deal. Okay? That's consumer Christianity. And it's wreaked havoc in the North American church because of our affluenza, some people call it. It's a disease, affluenza. We have too much that takes us away from God. And in our self-centeredness, we want God to make us happy. That was a problem with this crowd. They expected Jesus to make them happy, to meet their expectations. And Jesus says, you did not recognize it when God visited you. Not too far off from where we are today, right? Do we always recognize it when God visits us? And God's trying to get our attention because we all have our secret agendas and they're not always, if we're honest, they're not always in line with God's agenda for us. In the Gospels, Jesus is recorded as weeping over a broken family. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, that family is broken through death. Jesus weeps with them and he does something about it. In this story of Palm Sunday, Jesus weeps over a broken city. The city is just out to lunch as far as his agenda and what he's all about. And he weeps for what's going to happen to them. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was killed, I think he was weeping over a broken world. Just what makes Jesus weep? 
What makes Jesus weep over Winnipeg? Help me answer this question. Shout out, what do you think? What makes Jesus weep over Winnipeg? Racism. Racism, yeah. I'm sorry? Exploitation, especially sexual exploitation, yes. What else? Poverty. Poverty, yeah. And there's financial poverty, and there's poverty of spirit, there's relational poverty, there's all kinds of poverty. Yes. Addictions. Yeah. We just get trapped up in stuff. We typically think of addictions of those people, but we all have those. Many of us struggle with more socially acceptable addictions that we keep well hidden. And they keep us locked up from God. Anything else? I'm sorry? People who don't know Him. That's very good, Chris. Jesus weeps for those who don't know who He is. You know, it's mind-boggling, but not surprising, that many people have the wrong impression of Jesus. They don't understand. They've, there's been so much junk and so much bad communication about Jesus, we don't get a clear picture of who He is. That's why we need to pray for ourselves and people around us in our lives that Jesus will reveal Himself through the Holy Spirit to people. Because we get all these mixed messages. We're not so different from the people on Palm Sunday. But we all have our agenda for Jesus, but He has an agenda for us. And these kind of things, this brokenness, makes Jesus weep over Winnipeg. He weeps over Cross Lake. There's some people gathering at Home Street Mennonite Church this afternoon to, to pray over the reserve, where um, I think there have been six completed suicides since January. They, suicides often happen in clusters, young people especially. They do copycat things, and they just people just do that and try that because there's no hope. And that's tragic. And we can't make sense out of it. In fact, Christians in Cross Lake have connected with the local church here in the city saying, please pray for us. So this church, Sterling Mennonite Church, has gathered other churches around. Can we just pray together? We pray without a political agenda or lobbying anybody. Just let's get together. We just need to pray and intercede and ask God for mercy. Because God is weeping over our city, over our province, over our country, over the world. I think Jesus weeps over the consequences of sin and death. He weeps over us because he sees how messed up we are and how much we need him. That's the heart of God for us. Not to punish or destroy, but to bring us back, to reconcile us. 2 Samuel 14, 14 says, like water poured out of the ground, so we all must die. Everybody's got to go sometime. But God does not take away life. Instead, he, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. 2 Samuel 14, 14. You look it up when you get home. That's God's heart for us. He devises ways to woo us and bring us back into his family. 
That's why Jesus weeps for us. The good news is, there is good news coming. And if you're here on Friday, and you're here next Sunday, you'll understand what that good news is. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that you weep over our world, you weep over the brokenness that is in our lives. Thank you for this glimpse into your heart. And I pray that you would bring our hearts into alignment with your heart. We pray these things in your name, in your authority. Amen.